Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, I'd like to start today just making sure that you know that there is a wealthformula.com out there that you should visit. And why should you visit? Well, now there's lots of reasons to visit as if there wasn't before. One of them is, again, you can still download my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, at that site and have it for free and learn the eternal secrets of wealth. Who doesn't want that, right? Don't you want to know the eternal secrets of wealth? The other thing is that it's a brand new website. So if you've been there, if you haven't been there recently, it is brand new. It was uh, actually designed by Phil, who is my media director, as he likes to be known. And um, he uh, he did a great job with it. So um, shout out to Phil Chan, media director extraordinaire with that new website. And one of the cool features that he has on there is called SpeakPipe. Now, SpeakPipe is cool because what it's going to let you do is it's going to let you ask questions that I can then air in the the next Ask Buck episode. So make sure to go to wealthformula.com and ask questions on SpeakPipe. We'll record them, we'll play them, and uh, you can either be anonymous or you can just say who you are, whatever. Uh, if you say nasty things on there, that's okay. I'll listen to them. I'll probably not play them on the podcast, or maybe I will. Maybe uh, maybe we'll have all, all comers. At any rate, go to wealthformula.com and check that out. Now, I do want to make another shout-out to George Newberry and American Homeowner Preservation CEO. Now, uh, this uh, we've been talking about George for some time because he is the uh, earliest sponsor that I've had. And in fact, I've been an investor of his long before I was ever, uh, you know, before he was ever a sponsor. George, uh, George is sort of shifting into new things. And um, what we're really going to focus on right now is the fact that he has got this incredible event coming up in Chicago, my ex-hometown, well, it wasn't my hometown, it was where I lived for several years and went to med school, etc. It was on April 18th and 19th. It's called the Note Buyer Boot Camp. So we've talked about what they do, right? They buy failing mortgages for pennies on the dollar, and they turn around, keep people in their homes. You make 12%. But remember, George in this, in the, the fund makes like 39%. Right, 39%, 40%. That was their last audited financials. So what if you could learn to do this and make that kind of money for yourself? Well, 
I'm excited because I'm going to learn how to do it. In fact, I'm going to be on a panel at the Note Buyer Boot Camp uh, sometime during that April 19th, uh, April 18th or 19th, and we'll probably end up having a wealth formula get together during that event one of the evenings, maybe go out for drinks or something like that, as long as you're buying. And uh, so anyway, go to wealthformula.com and get yourself a $200 off coupon for that event. So make sure to do that. Anyway, let's go on to today's show. So it's been a lot of the last couple of weeks have been kind of crazy, just crazy, because we've had a lot of action going on in Wealth Formula World and in Wealth Formula Nation. Uh, and you know what? I, I learned a lot about people and our investors uh, during that time. And you know what? I realized that a lot of people out there want to get rich. <laughs> of course they do, right? Who doesn't? Who, who doesn't want that? I'm only sort of halfway joking about this because uh, the point I'm trying to uh, I'm making is that we had two funds. We have two funds that are active. And both, by the way, are Reg D 506C offerings open only to accredited investors. But I'm saying that because it also makes it legal for me to talk about them on air. Normally with a 506B, you cannot, which is one of the reasons why you should be joining Investor Club. Um, Anyway, one of the funds is a highly speculative fund, a cryptocurrency fund. And uh, when I did this particular talk, I emphasized several times throughout the discussion that this was highly speculative. I don't even consider it investing. I consider it speculating, right? And that you could potentially make a lot of money or you could lose it all. You could. You could lose it all. But despite that risk with this crypto fund, within just about four hours or so, there was about $2 million of money, uh, soft commitments uh, to this fund which was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that was, uh, that didn't take very long. And then there was a second fund, which were in the middle of a raise as well. Now, this second fund was value-add real estate deal. This kind of deal is really my favorite kind of deal uh, in all of real estate um, and really a fantastic situation where, you know, there's pro formas of double-digit returns, uh, refinancing the property with infinite returns. It's a real real asset, obviously. Great tax advantages. Um, an asset class is recession-proof, had a huge hedge against inflation. In many ways, what I would consider to be the ideal core portfolio investment, and in fact, I am making a a significant six-figure contribution to that particular opportunity. Well, 12 hours later, uh, we had soft commitments of about $1 million. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. That's still pretty good in 12 hours. But, I mean, look at the difference, right? You could lose all your money, and within four hours, you get $2 million, $2 million in, in soft commitments, and then and then you have something that's double digit returns, real asset, recession resistant, <laughs> all of these good things, and uh, only about and about half as many, uh, half as much interest in that. Which, again, it it tells us a little bit about ourselves and human nature, doesn't it? Now, listen, I also want to emphasize for you that I am no better than you. 
right? I'm not. I'm, I admit that. It takes a lot of self-control for me personally, uh, you know, to preferentially, to not preferentially reach out for the shiny object over the slow and steady one that often wins the race. And so listen, obviously I'm doing a crypto fund, so I'm not against this idea of speculating at all. I just want to remind you and myself that we also need to focus and probably spend most of our time focusing on our core investing principles. You know, again, real assets, cash flow, you know, uh, things that are going to very likely make us money in the future and have a very low probability of losing, uh, losing money. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is simply make sure you don't ever speculate with money you can't lose, please. That's just one of those things that you have to keep saying over and over again. And of course, any investment comes with the risk of losing money. It always does. But some are obviously less risky than others. For example, so I've recently become quite interested in this area of self-storage, right? Self-storage industry. And frankly, this is one of those areas that I hadn't really spent much time on until fairly recently. And I had no idea how it had performed throughout recessions uh, and, you know, the consistent, incredible track record of this asset class as a whole over the last three decades. It also has some market indicators that suggest that this area of real estate is, is really only going to get hotter uh, over the next several years and might really be the best, uh, best way to both, both maximally capitalize on an up market, which we probably still will have. We'll still have a, an up market for a while. We get the, you know, the Trump tax cuts that are turning otherwise nominal GDP into real GDP growth. We'll see how long it lasts, but what goes up must come down. So it's also nice to have a, um, a, an asset class that's that has a history of surviving, not only surviving, but thriving in down markets as well. Now, m- much of what I've learned about this area, the self-storage area, uh, was from my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, Lou Pollock. Lou Pollock is the managing director of Reliant Real Estate Management. Now, it may not sound sexy, but one thing I have learned over the past several years is that some of the most profitable businesses out there are ones that sound kind of boring. Sounds like, you know, sounds like stuff that's sort of like ho-hum. You know, I've, I've told the story, by the way, about the fact that, you know, I have a, a business uh, in cosmetic surgery. I, have a, I don't do it, but I, have a, I own a business in cosmetic surgery. In Chicago, cosmetic surgery, boy, that sounds kind of glamorous. That's a tough business, man. There's a lot of competition and stuff that, that sort of, you know, looks glamorous like that. But when it's boring, sometimes it's a little easier and sometimes it's more profitable. And self-storage is a great example of that. So when we come back, you're going to hear exactly why uh, with Lou Pollock. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Lou Pollock. Now, Lou is managing partner of Reliant Real Estate Management in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. And he is a longtime corporate executive and entrepreneur. He's been involved in the self-storage area uh, for over 30 years. Uh, he is also the past president of the Florida Self-Storage Association and really one of the major experts in self-storage in this country. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Buck. So, you know, I know you've been at this for a long time uh, in the self-storage business. I know a lot of people are sort of shifting over this now because, you know, they're they're not getting the yields and the, the kinds of deals that they're interested in in apartments. But you've been in this for over 30 years, and it isn't exactly the sexiest asset class in the world. But so why why did you get in this space, this space in the first place? I mean, what, was it just dumb luck or what, what, how did you end up being a self-storage guy? Well, it really was, I won't call it dumb luck. I've been, <laughs> it was kind of intuitive luck. I had gone to graduate school in California and had just moved to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I had, I could not find a place to store my belongings. In those days, self-storage was really not the industry it is now. If you were looking for a storage facility, it was mostly a row of garages with a 400-foot office in front with a retired sergeant major and his wife running the place. It was open five days a week, and hopefully you could find a place. But in, in Santa Fe, there just wasn't any place to store. I, I uh, made friends with a, a gentleman who is still my partner uh, from New York on this particular property. And we were talking about it. He had the same problem I did. And we said, well, how hard could it be to build these things? <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, uh -huh. fools rush in. Uh, it turned out that it wasn't that hard to do. Uh, back then, it was all non-climate control. There were no bells and whistles. And we had a good architect and a good engineer. And money was relatively inexpensive back then. Um, so we ended up building a 30,000 square foot storage facility uh, with little experience, actually no experience other than that of a consumer. Yeah, interesting. And that was what year? That was the uh, early, early uh, mid-80s? 1984. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And then, uh, you know, over three decades later, you're still at it. So obviously you've had some, uh, you liked what you got into. Uh, I really didn't know what I'd gotten into. Uh, I, had, I had owned some uh, strip malls, uh, so I knew what it was like to be a landlord. But I never considered myself a landlord when it came to self-storage because that's not the relationship that uh, ownership has with the customers. Um, so over the years, I figured out what a great idea self-storage was from an investor point of view, just from my point of view, because it, recurring revenue was king for me. I like the idea of, uh, of, of something that produces money every month without me having to constantly look at it. Uh, and self-storage built in the right way in the right place does just that. So let's talk about that because I think that's one of the reasons that you cite, the, you know, what you just cited is one of the reasons why we talk about real estate in general, whether that's multifamily uh, apartment buildings where, you know, I, my experience has been and um, certainly commercial. Uh, there are all sorts of different asset classes out there. And, and you know, most, most people like the cash flow element of this. But how is self-storage actually different uh, from an investor standpoint uh, from some of these other uh, asset classes that we've talked about? 
Well, self-storage, while it does require real estate uh, for its buildings, it used to be back when I started that people would view self-storage as uh, a place card. You, you were waiting for uh, the city to come out to where you were, and then you'd knock down the self-storage buildings and build something that really made money. Um, of course, that view has changed now. And what I find different about self-storage from other uh other uh, sectors is that one, it is huge amounts of customers in one place, which spreads the risk out of people, uh, of tenants leaving. Uh, very low maintenance compared to physical maintenance compared to what other sectors have to go through. Uh, related to the first point, if a tenant, if, we, if you had an anchor tenant in a shopping center and you lose the anchor tenant, you're in big trouble. Uh, that is not the case with self-storage. We could probably lose 20% of anything, which would amount to hundreds of tenants leaving at one time and not, not be in trouble. And so I'm, that, that's, that's from the, the downside of things, what could happen. On the upside, uh, because <clears throat> tenants don't know each other, because they're month-to-month leases, because the lien laws are very favorable to uh, the self-storage owner as opposed to the tenant. Uh, we can raise rents, at least the sector raises rents on average between nine and 11% a year. Uh, Reliant raises its rents uh, anywhere between 17 and 20% a year. Wow. Uh, depending upon the property. So those things, those things make it, I won't say inflation proof that we can raise rents the way we do, but we certainly beat inflation. And it, it, in, in bad times, uh, we know that we're not going to go out of business if we lose 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 of our customers uh, because they can't afford to keep their belongings in a storage facility. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the inflation proof part of that or inflation resistant. I think, you know, right now in this economy, <clears throat> particularly with the Trump uh, tax cuts, what I think many economists are looking at is, for the first time in a long time, some real growth in not just nominal GDP, but real GDP. And that is certainly going to be uh, something that um, that has the potential to drive drive inflation big time. So that's, that's a good point. But the other part of this is that how long can this whole thing last in terms of the economy being on the upside? And one thing that caught my eye, Lou, and I'd love for you to comment on this, is a Forbes magazine article where, you know, they were looking at publicly traded real estate trusts, which, of course, we're not dealing with here, but they're, they're a good way to look at larger data in general. But in 2008, every other real estate class was in the red. And this, or according to this article, the self-storage REITs were up 5%. In, in 2008, which is arguably the, hopefully the worst economy for real estate that we're ever going to see. Why is this uh, asset class recession resistant like that, if it is? Well, I commented on it a little bit uh, in, in one of the other questions, but one of it is that we have between 600 and 1,000 customers in any one property. And we would have to lose an exorbitant amount of customers leaving, just leaving and not being replaced in order for us to uh, lose a great deal of business. Um, 
And so the fact is that we're laying our bets out across a large population. If a, if a significant number left, it wouldn't impact us very much. So from the downside, uh, a recession which might translate into people not having enough disposable income to rent a storage facility um, doesn't affect us as much as it would uh, any other asset class, factories, commercial real estate of any kind, uh, multifamily housing. Well, obviously, you have a lot of you have a lot of properties. You've had a lot of properties for a long time. What happened in two thousand eight to your portfolio? Uh, we outperformed the REITs. Uh, I believe that our net income went up by nine percent in two thousand and eight. We may have lost. I think it was about two percent in population. In other words, two percent of our of our customer base uh, across our portfolio left. But that's also a little misleading because, as you know, we're a value-add company. We, we try to buy uh, kind of anemic uh, facilities. And some of them means we've got to dump the tenants that aren't paying and uh, do some pairing before we start growth. So all in all, I would say we didn't lose anything. I, I, what did happen was the complexion of our tenant base changed a bit. Uh, back in those days when construction was a big driver, I should say before 2008, construction was a big driver of self-storage. We had a lot of small uh, crafts-related people uh, who would rent from us, drive up carpenters, leave their lumber in, in a, as an example. Uh, they all disappeared uh, to be replaced by residential. Uh, so that happened. That was an interesting uh, uh, trend that we saw. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you think about, you know, that sort of leads me to the next question with real estate in general, there are often various types of demographic drivers. And if you think of that for self-storage, what comes to mind? We look for, in that regard, we're like, we are like uh, multifamily housing. We look for uh, lots of rooftops, lots of starter homes, lots of uh, apartments and, and condos. Uh, there's an old saying that if you can see a, see a Walmart and smell a McDonald's, that's a good place for a self-storage facility. <laughs> right. Good for uh, just about any real estate at that point. Right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's, it is true. Uh, we try to be in places where they're destinations. Uh, C2 zoning is what we look for. But uh, the drivers are, we, we like to see a population that is undersupplied with self-storage, and we have our own algorithms for determining whether the population is, is undersupplied. Um, significantly undersupplied is what we look for. And when I say significant, I mean we, we'd like to say that if, if two or three more facilities got built in our market area, that we would still be doing just, just fine. Uh, the second driver is competition. And because we only compete in the Class A uh, facility range, which means we provide all the bells and whistles and, uh, and services that, that the top providers provide, um, we are kind of looking to be the best in class in that market. Uh, and when we go to look at the competition, we have our own system of rating the competition in our area. Most of the facilities that we look at don't hold a candle to ours. So we're pretty certain that uh, we're going to be the winner, even if there is a significant competition. I've looked at a lot of data 
some of this is coming from the UK, but I can't imagine it would be that much different, but um, where there was a strong correlation with retirees, you know, the idea basically being that if you have, you know, people who are living in how living in homes for 40 years and accumulating stuff, right? They got to have a place to put it when they downsize, when they, you know, when they move into that condo, they don't want to just throw it away and they may not have, you know, uh, somebody to give it to right away or whatever. Uh, have you found that to be the case there, especially in Florida? Well, especially in Florida, there's a huge retirement community down here. And uh, we see lots of retirees doing exactly what you say. Everybody, uh, I, I'm, I'm not a retiree, but I've seen lots of them. Uh, talking about what are they going to do with their furniture when uh, they're waiting for their kids to grow up and want furniture or the paintings or the the family artwork, uh, just all sorts of things that nobody wants to dispose of. They either have emotional attachment to it or it's just they can't bring themselves to sell to sell something in a thrift store that was valuable to them. Sure. So we do cater to a whole bunch of retirees. You know, and I think you and I have discussed this, there are some other drivers that are specific to Florida uh, that have to do with the water table. Uh, we don't have any basements in Florida, so there really is no storage uh, room in most homes. Um, that's another uh, significant driver of people looking for self-storage. But the retiree issue is a big one here. Yeah. You know, uh, <clears throat> shifting gears a little bit, um, one of the things that I always look at in in investments, I mean, we've already talked about some of those things, which is resistance to potential down uh, downturns in the economy with recessions, whether it's something that can handle uh, acceleration of inflation. But, you know, one thing that I think people don't think about enough, which I emphasize all the time, is how is that investment going to be handled in terms of taxes? I mean, is there a, uh, you know, is there tax benefits to investing in self-storage? Yes. Uh, Self-storage is, is amenable to accelerated depreciation. Because of the construction or the methods of construction we use, it's particularly a favorable climate for doing segregation studies to determine how, what, what segments, what parts of the infrastructure can be used as a depreciable asset uh, in, in self-storage. Many of most of what is composed of self-storage, exclusive of the land, obviously, is depreciable over a very short period of time. Much of it can be depreciated over five years. I, I, I'm not certain we want to say that that's what's going to happen on the uh, the uh, storage facility that we're looking at specifically. But generally speaking, it's a great uh, asset that can be depreciated without scrutiny from the IRS. Yeah, so... I'm going to step in a little bit just to kind of explain a little to the to our audience what you're talking about there as an educational piece, which is that typically when you have a property, you have one of the big advantages of real estate, as you probably know out there, is depreciation. It's the magic of depreciation, which is sort of this phantom loss that you can take. That's one of the great things about real estate in general is that a lot of times when you get when you get a distribution through cash flow, when you take you know the interest that you're paying that's deducted and then you add in the depreciation, 
by the time you get your distribution, it's pretty much tax-free. Or you might even be taking a loss on paper, but actually have money in your pocket, which is, again, it's sort of the magic of depreciation. My friend Tom Wheelwright calls it that. So in the case, what what uh, Lou's talking about here is an additional layer uh, called a cost segregation analysis. So typically the way this works is in, um, let's take, for example, you know, your typical multifamily real estate deal that we know all about. And there's depreciation schedule on that property of, say, 27 and a half years. Now, what a cost segregation analysis allows you to do is take an engineering study that an engineer goes in and says, there are parts of this building that we could sort of pull out. They're not considered part of the real estate or real property. They are considered chattel. They're considered things that are not fixed to the real property. And those things, we can actually accelerate them much quicker than 27 and a half years. We can accelerate those, well, until recently, uh, up to five years. Now, with the new Trump plan, you can actually take those, and this was on the recent uh, interview with uh, Rich Dad advisor Tom Wheelwright. He was saying that you could take that and accelerate that now over one year. Now, whether you'd want to do that or another is another issue. But that's that's basically what um, but what Lou's talking about when he's talking about uh, uh, cost segregation analysis. Lou, let me jump in a little bit and talk specifically about Reliant. Um, now, this is your company. What makes Reliant different from other companies? How, you know, tell us about your strategies. Uh, you know, how do you how do you guys do business? Well, first, I will tell you that we uh, we decided early on that we were only going to compete in the class A sector of self storage. In other words, we were going to be the best in class uh, competing against you um, uh, public storage, extra space, the REITs in general. And once we decided that, which is not a bit, I mean that that's a, that can be a typical real estate play for any sector, but. We decided that 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 would be the least susceptible to uh, losses. If people were going to rent, they would rent from from that versus something else. All things being considered, the rental rates being in consideration. So once we decided that, we also decided that we were going to that we were going to go where the uh, where the people are, which is uh, the Sun Belt. So our facilities, particularly the Southeast, although we we understand other parts of the Sun Belt as well. Uh, our facilities, we have 47 of them currently, are pretty well confined to uh, Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama. Uh, and we group them in at least three facilities within a market area. Uh, we find that when we go to sell, uh, these facilities sell for a lower cap rate if we have a group of them, a, a portfolio rather sure. than just a one-off, and they're also easier to manage. Mm -hmm. So, one, we are in the Class A sector. Two, we are geographically discreet in areas that we know are going to grow faster than the rest of the country. Three, we have a different marketing philosophy than the REITs have. Uh, the REITs treat their uh, properties, their property managers as clerical staff pay them that way and treat them that way. Uh, they have no real responsibilities other than when you walk in as a customer to tell you what the rates are for different 
different size units, and they're generated from a central office. Our philosophy is we want our property managers to take ownership of the facility. We pay them well. We train them well. We give them a really nice place to live, which is very different than what the REITs do. Uh, and it shows people take our managers take real pride in, in how they manage our facilities. We have a very aggressive uh, bonus policy for what you would imagine, you know, most rentals per month and that sort of thing. They are also responsible for helping us uh, devise an annual budget for their facility, as well as the marketing plan. They are not, uh, while they're responsible for that, along with us, uh, we have very tight management controls uh, that um, ensure that the managers don't go off the reservation when yeah, it comes yeah. to giving <clears throat> discounts. Sure. So getting back to, so we have those three elements. One, uh, we treat our management really, really well, and that includes the training. We have our own large training facility in our headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Uh, two, we uh, compete very well against any competitor uh, in terms of physical infrastructure. Uh, and three, we, uh, we absolutely believe that these businesses are uh, management intensive, that at least 50% of how well these businesses do are what the manager does and not a clerical uh, yeah. A clerical one. So you're true uh, owner operators here, and I think that's a interesting, uh, you know, that's an interesting difference between you know investing in a REIT or uh, you know even somebody who's sort of dabbling in the area. You're you really you know you're treating this more as a business and than just an asset. Is that fair? Yes. Right. Absolutely. Now, specifically though, let's talk about the investment strategy because you. Um, you know, obviously, there's different ways to go about this. You could go in and find something that cash flows just fine and hold on to it, maybe improve it a little bit. Or you could, you know, you could go in and with a, a value add, uh, you know, type deal. Can you tell us your, you know, give us an example of a recent deal. Maybe I'll explain kind of your sweet spot. Um, we are a value add company. Uh, classic. We are always looking for uh, an opportunity, meaning a property or a portfolio that is underperforming for one reason or another. And those reasons can range from just very, very poor management uh, to not not providing certain point of sale items to not having rental trucks to having lights out. There are all sorts of reasons why uh, a facility may not be performing to its optimum. And we're always looking for them. Uh, and so when I say value-add, we, we are always looking for that and saying to ourselves, what if we made this into that Class A facility? What would it do? And because we do that, we see lots of opportunities that other people may not want to touch because they, they say, well, I'm not going to buy that because it's not producing. Well, yes, it's not producing, but it may not be producing because the property manager got too friendly with his customers, doesn't want to raise the rates. Uh we are always looking for those types of opportunities generally. As an example, uh, I'll give you a sunrise to sunset example. Uh, we bought a portfolio, three, three uh, facility portfolio for about $12 million. One of the facilities in that three, uh, portfolio, that three portfolio, three pack, uh, was at 50% occupancy. The other two were 
in the 80s, 80%, which is to, to us is full. That's a that's a stabilized property. But there was no reason for the third property, the bad one, to, to be at 50%. This is a true story. I walked in there during the due diligence period, the, that facility, at 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was the regional manager, who was also managing this this subject facility, standing in his bathrobe with a cup of coffee in his hand. <laughs> And it wasn't Hugh Hefner, I admit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't Hugh Hefner. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I was, uh, I literally was aghast. I couldn't believe that this guy with 50% occupancy wasn't out chasing down people or doing something to increase his revenue. And that's an example of, that's a pretty bad example of poor, poor management, but he was definitely poor management. So, that was, uh, we presented the, the opportunity for these facilities to um, one of our large family offices as an investment. And we saw that we could really hit a home run with this thing in, on a five-year plan. Five-year plan, uh, increasing the value of the, of the portfolio to a point in the first two years where we could refinance it. And then after five, sell it. As it turns out, we underestimated and overperformed. And two and a half years later, the portfolio sold for $23 million, uh, which was in excess of what we thought we would sell it for in five years. It was, it was basically the investor's idea that he had made his nut and he was ready to get out. Otherwise, we would still own it. But that's not typical. But what is typical is the thinking that goes into why we would get into a portfolio like that. Uh, we're always looking for the upside. Uh, while cap rates are important, many people buy self-storage facilities typically on a trailing 12 income, NOI. We look at that, but more important to us is what we can do to that facility to make it really sing. Yeah. Uh, and that could be building more rental space on the property, to raising rates, to being open seven days a week, uh, to having truck rentals, uh, to having a, a nice showroom for people to walk into. Yeah, I think that's where your 30 years plus experience in this comes in. You know, I mean, it reminds me, what you're saying right now reminds me so much of a conversation I had with um, Ken McElroy recently, um, was was part of shooting a course that we're doing. And uh, Ken said, um, you know, and he's famous for apartment buildings and value-add apartment situations. And and what he said was that he never looks at a place and gets intimidated, right? He knows exactly what needs to be done, and he knows when he can do it. And that's the kind of thing that really only happens when you've, you know, when, <laughs> when you're not new, right? When you're When you've done it a bunch of times and you really can understand and visualize what a project can become and the advantage that you can have over more newbies because you can really kind of, you know, get past that fear factor. That is true. I think the Chinese say the elders know where the tigers are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or as they say, if you're going to go into a dark cave, go with somebody who's been there a few times before. Anyway, Lou, you did a presentation for uh, Investor Club um, uh, yesterday, actually. It was really interesting. It was an opportunity in Naples, Florida, which I'm personally really excited about. Uh, it is filling up quickly. It is open to accredited investors only as a Reg D 506C offering. So uh, if you're listening out there and this sounds like something you might have an interest in, you know, certainly sign up for Investor Club on WealthFormula.com or even just shoot me an email, buck at WealthFormula.com, 
and we will get you information on that opportunity. Lou, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. You bet. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Again, this is an area that really fascinates me. Again, you know, it's like one of these things, every time I dig deeper into something, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. And 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 this particular uh, asset class, this this whole self-storage area, I just am I'm suddenly really excited about it. And when you hear about, you know, the the kinds of things that Lou and his group are doing, you gotta you gotta get pretty excited. I mean, listen, so when I listen, I hear real asset with high returns. I hear resistant to recessions. I hear inflationary hedge. I hear major tax advantages. To me, that's a winner. Now, depending on when you are listening to this, there is an opportunity open through Investor Club uh, right now that you may want to check out. If you're not part of Investor Club and you are an accredited investor, you really need to get on there so you get these kinds of notifications. But if you aren't yet, uh, make sure you do that. You won't get a notification properly of this particular deal. But if you want and if you want to learn more about uh, the opportunity that's going on, just shoot me an email, bucketwealthformula.com, and I can send you the opportunity about uh, some of the some of the things that we're looking at and, and a very specific opportunity that's a Reg D 506C. Sounds fancy, but it just means open only to accredited investors. And if you have an interest in that, do this as soon as possible, because as I mentioned uh, before, it's uh, already filling up pretty quickly, um, and I'm investing in it with a six-figure contribution myself. I think this is ideal for my core portfolio, something that, you know, again, I don't look at, and and it's not shiny, but man, oh man, a couple years from now, uh, you know, I'm... I'm uh, I think I'll be excited and happy that I did it. Anyway, that is my call to action for you this week. My friends, that's all I have for you this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. 
You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.